Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it and hope you are safe and well. We head into the big Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be a different Memorial Day in a lot of ways. I'll have some thoughts on that a little bit later on in the program. But we hope you have a safe holiday weekend. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to talk about some things going on with the ethanol industry and and what uh, EPA is saying or not saying about different things like blend volumes and uh, waivers. And we'll get into all that with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Also, lots to talk about with the pork industry. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel for Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. He'll be joining us on the program. And we're going to get a planting update. We're going to eastern Nebraska. We'll talk with Nebraska farmer Greg Anderson a little bit later on in the program. But we're going to start things off today talking with the CEO of the American Soybean Association, Ryan Finley. Ryan, we haven't talked in a while. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right, Mike. Staying home, staying healthy, but otherwise it's been a busy, busy last few months. How are you doing? Very good. I, I was wondering, is your staff still working from home? You're, you're not back altogether in the office yet, are you? We are not. So ASA is open for business. However, our staff are working remotely, trying to make sure that everybody is staying safe and, and we're following the local guidance, both in St. Louis and in Washington, D.C., where our offices are located. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get your thoughts on the uh, just recently announced uh, coronavirus food assistance program from a soybean perspective. What would you think of it? We think it's a good start. I think that there are undoubtedly questions around this program. So laying the land, there was a there there continues to be a challenge in farm country. Everybody recognizes that. It's good that the federal government recognizes that. Um, some challenges out there as it relates to demand around, from caused by COVID, and so to see. USDA respond first Congress with the CARES Act and then the corresponding regulation, which is the CFAP program or the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program from USDA. It's good to see. So it's $16 billion is the is the package um, around just under a billion of that. So right around 845 million is what we estimate is is available for U.S. soybean farmers. What did you think about how they handled payment limits? <laughs> I guess that depends on if if it impacts you or not. So I we are hearing mixed results. We the payment limit increased to two hundred fifty thousand, and then some other other changes within that that could really increase it beyond that, depending on how your farm operation is structured. Um, for some, it has been a, a welcome sign. For others, and and I would say that we have some of our farmer leaders that are uh, both soybean growers but are also in livestock whether that's hogs or poultry and and i certainly get the impression for many in the livestock sector that this is helpful but not nearly what they need and so i don't want to speak for the livestock sector in general but from the farmers that we have heard from um, some are happy with this but others say that we shouldn't have payment limits at all if this is truly designed to help um, farms and agriculture get through 
um, a situation outside of their control, such as COVID-19. What are you hearing from soybean farmers across the country and how they are impacted by COVID-19 and how they are handling COVID-19? It is, it's amazing, Mike, and, and how mixed it is. I have talked to some farmers that it's business as usual. There's been absolutely no change. And other farmers who are saying, hey, we have um, designated two individuals per tractor and we wipe the tractor down in between who is, who is jumping in to, to um, work the field or to spray or to plant. So there's a, a big spectrum out there of how everyone is approaching it. And I think for each farm, it's going to be different. The concern of risk is different based on the health of everybody involved in the farm. Um, but I, I do feel that most everybody that, that we have in, interacted with feels this is a concern. It's something that we have to pay attention to. Um, we have to be be careful with it. and And yet we still have to make sure that we plant this spring and food gets in the ground so that we have something for American consumers this fall to harvest. We would hate to not be able to do the job of agriculture now and feel some serious repercussions later this year. So while everybody recognizes it's an issue and a concern, they're being smart, they're being safe, and and we need to get the job done at the same time. As you said, you are working remotely, your staff, but still working. How has it impacted or how does it um, change in any way the work you're doing at ASA? Or are you able to continue to work, even though going about it differently, with the same incentives and objectives that you had? Yeah, I, I think that's the beauty of this organization is that we have really positioned ourselves to be able to do our work from wherever we are at. And when this all started um, uh, almost 10 weeks ago now, we had some conversations with our team in Washington, D.C. to say, how do we deliver on the policy front, whether it's regulatory or legislative? How do we engage with policymakers in a low touch or a no touch environment? And our team has been, in my opinion, really successful at being able to reach out to the network that we've established and talk to people on Capitol Hill engage with House and Senate Agricultural Committee staff and leadership, talk to people at USDA, talk to people at EPA. All of that has gone really well, and they want to talk to us because they want to know where are farmers at, what is going on, where are the pain points. And it's different across the United States, but a desire from our policymakers to hear from us. And, um, you know, when we look at the CFAP program, I, I think I think we can – um, there's 100%, I am sure of, of this, 100% of the people will find a fault in this program. And, and we have $16 billion that's going out to over 100 different commodities, and everybody has something that they want from it. Um, and USDA has done, in my opinion, a remarkable job of reaching out to everybody and trying to engage with them. Um, and, and so while it's not a perfect program, it's a good start. But I think it really tells, to answer your question before, of how is ASA engaged, we have been in touch with USDA on nearly a daily basis, but several times throughout um, each week, engaging with them to say, this is where U.S. soybean farmers are at, and this is what we hear from the countryside. All right, Ryan, thanks so much. Good to talk with you, and glad to hear you're well, and have a safe Memorial Day weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Excellent, Mike. Thanks. You as well. Take care. 
take you to. Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Up next, an update on some ethanol issues. What's going on with EPA? What kind of decisions are they making or not making when it comes to ethanol? And um, we have quite a bit to go over with Brian Jennings. He's CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Get his thoughts on that HEROES bill that was passed in the House and what it has for ethanol in it and what he thinks about its chances of getting through in the Senate. We'll talk about that next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Lots to talk about with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, how are you? Hey, Mike. Happy Friday to you. I'm doing okay, thanks. Yeah, this would nor you know we would think of this big first uh, weekend holiday weekend, kind of the unofficial start to summer. We would think of a lot of driving, a lot of uh, uh, fuel being used. That would be a big ethanol weekend. It may be a little better than we thought a few weeks ago, but it's certainly not going to be what it would normally be. Oh, you're so right. My two favorite things: grilling steak and burning ethanol on a weekend like this. I'm I'm going to try to do both still, but you're right. We're uh, we're still far from normal. We have had some promising signs in the marketplace. However, the last two to three weeks, we've seen a nice uptick in gasoline use. And as a function of that, ethanol blending has gone up. We've uh, started to whittle away of those record stockpiles of, of ethanol that we had in storage, well over a billion gallons. We're starting to whittle away at that. And so we do see some promising um, signs in the marketplace, but we know we've got a long, long way to go before things get back to where they were prior to the pandemic. Yeah, no doubt the best thing that can happen, you know, we talk a lot about assistance for all uh, sectors, but uh, the best thing would be to get our economy back up, open and running and going, and we're taking steps in that direction. But in the meantime, assistance is needed. And let's talk about um, a bill introduced by Senators Grassley and Klobuchar, uh, that I know that you appreciated that would help the industry. Absolutely. Um, we've always been uh, the beneficiary of bipartisan support in Congress, and this latest legislation by Senators Grassley and Klobuchar is, is just another example of that. Um, their bill would provide uh, a reimbursement payment through USDA to renewable fuel producers for the feedstocks they purchased um, for processing into ethanol and biodiesel during the first quarter of 2020. This is something we actually worked very closely with Senator Grassley's staff on during that third stimulus bill back in March, and we tried to get it included in that third stimulus, the CARES Act, um, but ran into a bit of a buzzsaw with some oil state senators. But Um, I think we have a a better chance, hopefully, of getting something like this done in a fourth stimulus. You know, another promising development was, of course, the House passed a fourth stimulus that contained a similar, not not identical, but a similar direct aid provision for ethanol and biodiesel producers. And so I think we see some promising signs that Congress is turning its attention to, 
to something that was overlooked in the past, and that is getting some emergency assistance to to the biofuel sector. Uh, which has a better chance of actually happening, you think? Um, the bill by Senators Grassley and Klobuchar or whatever version of the HEROES Act that passes in the Senate keeping the biofuels portion in it? <laughs> yeah, part of me hates to pick favorites because we're really grateful that Chairman Grassley worked hard in the on the House. Excuse me, Chairman Peterson worked hard on the House side to, to get that, that House language through. But um, I want to honestly answer your question, and I think the honest answer is the bipartisan effort on the Senate side by uh, Senators Grassley and Klobuchar, in my opinion, is probably going to be the, the version that prevails. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We, we've got a lot of work to do. The Senate um, isn't as eager to pass a fourth stimulus bill and for good reason, uh, you know, trillions of dollars have gone out the door already, and I think a lot of senators want to take inventory of how that has impacted the economy. But I do think at some point in June, you're going to see Republicans and Democrats, House members and senators come together, develop a force package, and I'm hopeful, and we're going to push for something resembling the, the Grassley Klobuchar language to be included in that bill. We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, this uh, past week, uh, EPA Administrator Wheeler appeared before a a Senate committee, and they were talking about RFS petitions. Some were asking for waivers. Others, of course, looking for support uh, for the RFS, looking for some kind of guidance what... uh, EPA is going to do. Wheeler was kind of noncommittal. What did you take from that? Yeah, I, I chuckle because he's he's become a master as as many of these folks do once they have these positions of uh, not really answering questions mm-hmm. um, and muddying the waters. You know, it, it, there's a lot of pressure on EPA right now. I get it um, by the oil companies and oil state politicians to waive the RFS. But we also need Administrator Wheeler to do his job, and that is uphold the RFS. And you and I have talked about this before, Mike. You've said one thing the government can do is, is not hurt uh, us. And, and, and part of what EPA has been doing over the past few years has been hurting us through these small refinery waivers. We need EPA to apply the decision out of that Tenth Circuit case in Denver that would narrow or limit the number of these small refinery waivers in the future. We need EPA to fulfill the, the statutory promise that 15 billion gallons means 15 billion gallons in the RFS. And we didn't really get any concrete assurance from him, in my opinion, that he's going to do those things based on the hearing in the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee this week. A report is out that EPA may slightly raise the biofuel blending requirements under the uh, RFS next year. That has raised concerns on both sides of this issue. Some uh, don't want any increase, and of course, uh, I know you would like to see a, a greater increase. What do you make of this? Is it, is he trying to play it down the middle, or what's going on here? You think? I do know that people at EPA think they're doing their job when both the fossil fuel and the renewable fuel sectors are unhappy with them, but I don't necessarily agree with that philosophy and. 
you know, and I think it's an 80 million gallon increase they're talking about for 2021. That probably is meaningless, Mike, until we have better knowledge from EPA on how they intend to handle small refinery waivers going forward, because they can say on paper all day long, they're going to call for 15 billion gallons, for example, of conventional biofuel next year. But if they grant a billion gallons worth of small refinery waivers, that undermines that promise. So it's really what they do on the small refinery waivers going forward that's going to matter and and impact that overall blending figure. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This this is still the key issue, right? <laughs> it is. I wish we weren't talking about this still, but um, until EPA comes out and, and says, well, the Tenth Circuit Court slapped our wrist the way we were doing these waivers in the past for small refineries, we're going to change our approach. We're going to reduce the number of the waivers that we issue. We're going to require reallocation of these gallons so the statutory volumes remain intact. Until we get that assurance from EPA, we're going to you know, have to keep beating them with this issue. Um, as you say, things continue to stay the same. Like a lot of things that happened not that long ago, seems like a lifetime ago now because of everything that's been going on. But when that court decision came down, we thought, you know, this is the breakthrough. This this will surely give EPA the blueprint to, to do the right thing and support the RFS. But now, uh, you know, stop granting all these waivers. But now, uh, here we're still waiting. Yep, it was a game-changing um, decision by the Tenth Circuit, and we were very optimistic but EPA has, has continued to drag their feet. We now have 27 small refinery waivers pending for the 2019 calendar year. They're sitting on the administrator's desk. We're waiting for Andy Wheeler to, to render a decision, and he needs to take into, into consideration the court precedent. Uh, he, he signaled that he might look at that during the hearing this week, but Again, no concrete promises, no firm promises. Brian, good to talk with you. Stay safe. Have a great holiday weekend. Yeah, fire up the grills, do some driving, and uh, let's get things going again. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. You too. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Up next, we talk about the uh, pork industry and its uh, challenges and some things that have happened. We'll get some reaction to the uh, CFAP announcement and also a recent Department of Justice ruling that impacts uh, pork producers. All that coming up as we'll talk with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. That's coming up next here on Adams on Agriculture. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams and we're joined now by nick giordano vice president and council global government affairs for the national pork producers council nick thanks for joining us lots to talk about what's your reaction to the cfap announcement this week well it's going to cover more um more of the industry than the msp trade retaliation payments. So that's positive. 
but there's still going to be a lot of hogs that aren't covered. And of course, um, the, the hog sector, like so many sectors of the economy, is not doing well right now. And I think, unfortunately, we may uh, be the poster child for sectors that are really suffering. So it's, it's an improvement, but it, it is capped at uh, $250,000, although depending on the structure, the business structure, you could get up to $750,000. Look, it's it's something, but um, we're going to continue to advocate for more. And, you know, separate and apart from direct payments to producers, which are important, um, we're uh, advocating for payments to producers for euthanized hogs. And, in fact, in the recent... uh, house passed bill there are very good livestock provisions in there so we're um we're focusing on a number of things we we appreciate that usda's got limited funds we understand that um so we'd like to have more money available for direct payments but just as important probably more important um is to get money in the hands of producers who unfortunately have to euthanize hogs which can't make it into the food chain you had a recent DOJ ruling. Tell us about that, how it impacts the pork producers. Well, in, in a nutshell, the, the two uh, antitrust boogeymen are um, talking about prices and, uh, and talking about supply and potentially restricting supply. So National Pork Producers Council wanted to make sure that we could get as much security for our members as possible that they wouldn't be vulnerable under the antitrust laws for um, putting down hogs, which unfortunately is happening and has to happen. And so we, um, we petitioned the Department of Justice for a process called the Business Review Letter. They're not granted very frequently, only about 20 in the past 20 years. So they're rare. And it may seem straightforward to a lot of listeners and certainly to producers. I mean, it's through no fault of their own. You, you, you can't get these things into the food supply. You can't get these hogs into the food supply. They're backing up. Um, it becomes an animal welfare challenge in terms of and a, and a human safety uh, challenge in terms of handling very heavy hogs and so on. So they've got to be euthanized. It seems pretty straightforward, but again... Um, you're really, uh, some might say, um, in a very rigid interpretation, you're restricting supply. So we wanted to make, we wanted to give our producers, our state affiliates, the peace of mind that, of course, they're doing, unfortunately, what's got to be done, and that they don't need to worry about um, and, and, and any antitrust violations here. We're talking with Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, here we are going into the big first big holiday weekend for the summer, the time we think a lot about grilling and things like that. Um, but it's going to be challenging in some places for consumers to find the supply of pork that they would normally see, and in some cases it may be at a price they're not used to seeing too. Well, certainly there's been upward pressure on, uh, on prices of both, you know, of meat and poultry. But the good news is that, um, plants are coming back on stream. I think all, all the pork plants 
you know, we were we were engaged in a in a downward spiral, frankly, until President Trump um, stepped in and triggered the Defense Production Act, and that's something MPPC worked very hard with the administration on, and with other um, meat and livestock groups. So we're 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 not back to maximum capacity in the plants, but um, we you know we had 40 percent of our capacity knocked out. We're, um, you know, now there's less than uh, than only 20 that's down. It's getting better. And uh, and and, you know, hopefully I, I you know, I, I can't predict nobody can. But um, I we're certainly headed back in the right direction. And hopefully um, we get back to um, full capacity sooner rather than later. Obviously, um, that's going to mean less upward pressure on consumer prices but you know to the crisis on the farm really we don't we don't really have a crisis in the supermarket shelves we got a crisis on the farm and we unfortunately have producers that have to euthanize hogs so yeah there's been some upward pressure on prices but the good news is the plant plant capacity is going up by the day that means less hogs have to be euthanized that also means less upward pressure on consumer prices. Yeah, and we're starting to see, as the country slowly reopens, uh, we're starting to see some restaurants now opening back up, not not at full capacity, and maybe just, uh, you know, maybe if they can offer outdoor dining or something like that or limited seating inside, but at least more coming on. So the, now we don't we have this kind of a bit of a raise? I mean, we're trying to get the packing plants going uh you know, closer to full speed so they can supply the the uh, grocery stores. But now they're also going to be back to supplying for these restaurants. So we we the good news is that we're we're starting to expand there. Hopefully, the packing plants will be able to start catching up here. Well, and they are, um, and so that that's positive, and we're certainly headed back in the right direction. But um, you know, there's only so much that. NPPC can control. And right now, Mm -hmm. our number one priority is to get more relief to our hog farmers who are in the midst of an unprecedented crisis. And, And Mike, if we don't get more government support to producers, we risk blowing out a lot of production. And long term, you know, we're really talking about the short term impact on prices. There's the long-term potential here if we can't keep these, these producers in operation. And so right now, the most important thing that MPPC is focused on is getting more relief. The House just passed a bill. Now, most people know this HEROES Act has got zero, pass, zero chance of passing as is. It's, it's a, almost a 100% Democratic bill. Very few Republicans voted for it. But it's got very, very good agriculture and specifically livestock provisions. It it provides compensation to livestock producers for euthanized animals. It provides for virtually everybody in agriculture more money for direct payments. It amends the CCC charter so that um, euthanization, removal, and disposal um, are are part of the CCC charter. So things that are really important to hog farmers, to livestock producers, 
broadly to agriculture. So our folks are very much engaged in talking to their senators to try and urge the the Senate to move because we really we, we appreciate the, the CPAC, which those payments will start up on Tuesday and run through August 28th. We've been through that with our membership, but we got to get them more. So we're very focused on trying to get the, the Senate at the negotiating table um, with the House right. so that we can get these these House provisions in a, in a bill that the president signs. Yeah. Cut out the non-COVID-related items of the HEROES Act and, and keep the things that are directly related to the pandemic, which would, which would include the agriculture portions for sure. Before we let you go, Nick, uh, how concerned are you about the rhetoric back and forth between the U.S. and China and how that could impact the trade deal? Well, we're very concerned. I mean, you know, China, China's been a very significant export market for us. Um, you know, we said early on that pork was really going to be the litmus test as to whether China lives up to its stage one commitments. Um, you know, China is the biggest producer and consumer of pork in the world. And about, you know, about 50 percent of their production has been knocked out because of African swine fever. But we're, we're while we are shipping a lot there, we're not seeing the numbers that we had hoped to see. And I think that's across the board in agriculture. And now when you, you, know, you look at what else is kind of going on in the U.S.-China relationship, we're, you know, we're concerned. And you, know, you wonder where long-term the U.S. and China are headed. It's obviously a great opportunity for U.S. hog farmers to sell um, and for others in U.S. agriculture, but clearly there's a lot of uncertainty. All right, Nick, thanks a lot for the update, and uh, have a safe uh, holiday weekend, and we hope people do uh, get pork on that grill, and uh, we get things going again here soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Coming up next, we're going to get a planting update. We'll check in with Greg Anderson, soybean farmer in eastern Nebraska. When we talked with him uh, a while back, he was off to a good start with planting. We'll see if he's all done and how things are looking. And I'll also have some thoughts on this uh, Memorial Day observance that will be unlike what we would normally have. Some good reminders, though, for us, some, some, things, some things to think about as we observe the holiday. That's coming up next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's get a planning update from eastern Nebraska. Greg Anderson, soybean farmer, joins us. Uh, Greg, good to talk with you again. We talked early in the month, and you were off to a good start with your soybean planting. Are you done? If we have, Greg. Oh, we lost him. Okay, well, hopefully we'll get him back. We talked with Greg right at the beginning of this month, and he was off to a good start so uh, we hope that uh, his planting has gone well and we'll get an update from him here hopefully in just a moment as we continue to check in around the country to see how planting is going 
Uh, I tell you what, where I live in Illinois, a lot of planning's been done. Some replanting may have to be done, but it's just been a lack of sunshine. It's just been, if not raining, cloudy day after day after day. So hopefully uh, we'll get that turned around as well and get some improved weather as we uh, get ready before long here to head into the month of June. All right, Greg is with us now. Greg, uh, thanks for joining us. I was asking, are you done with planting yet? I actually finished Mike on May 12th. That's probably one of the earlier dates that I've ever finished in my career of farming and raising soybeans. But uh, yeah, the the conditions were really turned a great optimum really for planting this year. The seed went into the ground in good soil uh, conditions, good working conditions. It was rather dry, so that was a concern. However, the last part of the month now is uh, turning uh, a little bit wetter. So that's welcome news. It helps for germ- germination, get everything up evenly, and also the temperatures are finally starting to warm up as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Are you warming up there in eastern Nebraska? And some parts of the Midwest are concerned about too much water on uh, planted fields, but your moisture so far has been welcome, you'd say. Yes. Uh, you know, from mid-April till about mid-May, I only had about three-fourths of an inch, so it wasn't much uh, moisture that fell. And uh, now I've had a good inch of rain uh, last Saturday here. Uh, last uh, yesterday late, I had about another three-tenths of an inch. Uh, forecast is for today as well as the weekend, uh, one to two inches. And so as long as it probably stays within those parameters, uh, you know, nothing is going to get excess here. However, some parts of the state, I understand, in south-central Nebraska had abundant rainfall, maybe a little bit more than they wanted. What about emergence? How does it look? At first, Mike, it was slow. I know those beans that I planted in um, April, around the 20th of April, were slow to come up. It was just so cold as well as uh, dry, but rather the, the cool temperatures, I think, uh, you know, we had a lot of uh, nights that got close to freezing. Uh, we didn't experience the frost here, which I was glad to see because I did have some beans that were emerged and were uh, in the cotyledon stage, maybe the first leaf, and uh, we didn't have the freeze. Uh, we got pretty close, though, so that was always a concern. But, you know, it, it was just uh, so cool for so long that the, the uh, soil temperatures were, were really cool uh, for emergence to really, for those beans, for the them to jump out of the ground like we'd want them to. However, uh, most of the soybean seed now is treated with a fungicide insecticide and, and uh, uh, you know, really helps uh, those inhibiting factors to be overcome, I believe. And so, uh, you know, beans are pretty resilient. Uh, they'll, they'll come when they're ready. And uh, I'm seeing good stands, um, really no disease pressure or insect pressure uh, to date. All right. Well, Greg, just wanted to check with you. Glad to hear that you're done. Things are looking uh, good there in eastern Nebraska. And we'll check back in uh, as the growing season goes along and see how things are going. But uh, thanks a lot. Have a good holiday weekend. Thank you, Mike. You as well. Always good to visit with you. All right. Take care. Greg Anderson, soybean farmer in eastern Nebraska. Well, as we head to the uh, big holiday weekend, just some thoughts uh, that this Memorial Day observation will certainly be different this year. This is, of course, our unofficial start to summer. It's when we traditionally remember those who have served and sacrificed for our country. And we will still do that, even if it is while socially distanced. This year, however, we will not only remember those who have served our country, but we'll also be remembering what our country used to be like not that long ago. We'll 
remember a lot of things, and what we'll remember the most are some of the things we took most for granted. We'll remember how we used to go to church to feed our souls and remember how we went to restaurants to feed our bodies. We'll remember how we used to go to county fairs and graduations and ball games and stores and vacation trips. We'll fondly remember when we didn't need to wear masks or didn't need to avoid people in grocery stores while looking for items now in short supply. We'll remember when unemployment was low and the overall economy was strong. Seems like a lifetime ago, but it wasn't that long ago, really. We've learned painfully that it is easier and quicker to shut down an economy than it is to bring one back. We've also learned that the freedoms that many have sacrificed for are precious and can be taken away very quickly. Enemies come in many forms and sometimes, like a virus, are invisible. The impact, however, is very visible. Threats to our freedoms are sometimes hard to see until it is too late. Our freedoms should help us through a crisis, but if we aren't careful, we can lose those freedoms in a crisis. Reasonable people can disagree on issues like health and safety. However, there should never be a disagreement on preserving our freedoms that so many have fought for and some would now take away from us. Responsibilities come with freedoms. We all need to act responsibly, especially in times like this, but we also have to be allowed to do so. Our country has survived many great tests in the past, but that's no guarantee we will overcome this one or those in the future. That doesn't just automatically happen. We have to fight to make it happen. We have to remember that we are fighting for something very special, our way of life. It wasn't perfect before the COVID-19, and it never will be because we're humans, imperfect humans. But that doesn't mean, however, we have to sit back and let it be taken away from us. It's easy to point fingers and criticize, but like it's always been, it's up to each of us to make a positive contribution to our society. We are all called to serve our country in different ways, especially in times like this. On this holiday of remembrance, let's all remember that on our worst days, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on our best days, we are never beyond the need of God's grace. Have a safe holiday weekend, everyone.